Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we find out how social media sleuths exposed a popular Twitter account that claimed to be a Canadian volunteer soldier in Ukraine as a fraud. We hear from two experts at Yale who argue that unprecedented sanctions against Russia following the invasion of Ukraine are having a much more devastating impact on that country's economy than the Kremlin is letting on. We find out why Canadian high-tech flyers Shopify suddenly has fallen onto harder times and will it be able to turn things around? But first, Hockey Canada executives got a grilling today in Ottawa as they testified in front of the House of Commons Standing Committee looking into its handling of sexual assault allegations. There are growing calls for Hockey Canada's CEO to resign in the face of so much criticism, but today he insisted he'll be staying on. You could see grandstanding, but you'd see people in positions of power held to account in a public forum. Of course, committees are small groups of MPs. They look into selected matters in greater depth than is possible in the House of Commons. And that's what they were up to today. Hockey Canada executives were playing defense as they testified in front of the House of Commons Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage today. The committee's looking into those to the handling of sexual assault allegations, including how the organization responded to an alleged sexual assault in 2018 involving players on Canada's World Junior Team in London, Ontario. Several witnesses appeared today, including Hockey Canada President and CEO Scott Smith. The committee heard that nine complaints alleging sexual abuse have received $7.6 million, $7.6 million in settlement since 1989 from a dedicated fund called the National Equity Fund, which is maintained in part by membership fees, those who play hockey, kids, parents, their money. Now, most of the payouts have been to abuse victims of former hockey coach Graham James. Hockey Canada has said that fund will no longer be used to settle sexual assault claims. It all comes as former NHL player and abuse survivor Sheldon Kennedy last night criticized the CEO and president and called for him and his leadership team and the board of directors at Hockey Canada to step down. Today, Conservative MP John Nader told Hockey Canada President and CEO Scott Smith that change needs to come for the good of the game. For the good of hockey, for the good of the countless volunteers across this country, the good work that countless blameless people are doing in the sport of hockey, I strongly believe there needs to be new leadership within Hockey Canada. Well, despite that avalanche of criticism, and it really was an avalanche of criticism, not just in Ottawa today, but for the last few weeks, the last month or so, from absolutely everywhere, Scott Smith, who has been with Hockey Canada for decades, he's only been the CEO uh, for a few weeks now, but uh, he's been with the organization for a long time, told the committee that uh, he can bring about the needed change. He will not step down. I believe I said in my opening statement uh, that I'm prepared to take on this responsibility for change within our game. I believe I've got the experience to do it. Should our board or the governance review that we've outlined in our action plan suggest that I'm not the person, then I'm prepared to accept that. That is uh, CEO Scott Smith of Hockey Canada there. They did put out an action plan late last week to try to cope with some of this. Um, it's not a particularly great document, but it feels a bit rushed, but it's out there. He mentions it. Now, keep in mind, the federal government has frozen Hockey Canada's public funding. Major sponsors have started to flee, at least individual events, such as the World Juniors at Edmonton coming up. Is it, are they, do they need a change of leadership? It would seem like they probably do. Well, joining me now is Kirsty Allain. She's an associate professor of sociology and the Canada Research Chair in Physical Culture and Social Life at St. Thomas University in New Brunswick and an expert in men's hockey culture. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me today. 
So it feels like there's a lot to wade through with what was uh, said today, what was revealed as uh, Hockey Canada executives appeared in front of this committee in Ottawa. Uh, from your, where you're sitting, what did we find out today and how much of it came as a surprise? Um, I think we found out a bit more about the claims. Uh, we did see some overtures to releasing folks from non-disclosure agreements, which I, I think is one of the positive things. But I think uh, we, we heard more about Hockey Canada's plan to make sure that this isn't going to happen again. We heard from the head of Hockey Canada that he has no intentions of stepping down, that he's, you know, feels that he's going to be the, the right person to move this along and move, move this project of disrupting hockey culture forward. And I think we, we saw with our own eyes the, the kind of commitment that Hockey Canada has. I think a lot of people have commented on social media, and I think rightfully so, that a lot of what was said today sounded very hollow, sounded very insincere. And there's a lot of questions about whether uh, the leadership at Hockey Canada, and, and I would even stretch that to the leadership at the Canadian Hockey League, are these the best people to, you know, right the ship to actually people who generated a, a problematic culture in men's hockey? Can they be the same people to fix it? And I think, as I've said since the beginning of this, likely not. Um, tell, definitive me, not actually. tell me about that problematic culture, because it does feel uh, in this sense, and even the revelations we continue to find, to hear about are, are being dug up. They're not being volunteered, uh, that this is essentially an organization that's been called to the carpet. Um, and now they're trying to put a, a good foot forward, but but it doesn't feel like any of this has been voluntary. No, and I, I think what you're saying is is bang on. We we really owe what we know to some some fabulous investigative reporters, and and I commend them for their work here. Um, it's not because Hockey Canada, for all of its uh, language of transparency and truthfulness, they've not been very transparent nor very truthful. In fact, they they've really obfuscated truth throughout. Um, you know, we, we heard about the 2018 case only be through the press, and then they were brought to account for it. And it was, you know, shortly thereafter that all of a sudden we now hear about the 2003 uh, alleged assault at, in Halifax. But this none of this came from Hockey Canada. And they've only really, I mean, they're answering questions now, more or less. But but to my mind, there's no real commitment to transparency. This is this is the language of transparency. But we've not actually seen Hockey Canada, the CHL, and other executives in, in elite level men's hockey be very transparent at all. And that's not surprising. Hockey Canada and elite level men's hockey in this country has operated as a closed institution. It's been incredibly resistant to letting people in that that aren't from that community that weren't sort of. Uh, raised in that community, most of the people who are associated with elite level hockey in Canada, men's hockey in Canada came through the system themselves, were trained in a very particular form of hockey culture, and then worked to mentor the next generations of young men. I think that this raises important questions about whether these people are capable of, of you know, disrupting the culture of tearing it down and building it back up again, which is what we desperately need. And I, I don't see how that can be possible with the same people at the helm. Tell me a bit about this action plan that was released late late last week from Hockey Canada to, quote, shatter the code of silence and eliminate toxic behavior in and around Canada's game. Uh, it feels like that was put together relatively relatively quickly in the face of some very stern criticism. Uh, it, it, is it legitimate? Do you think it'll work? 
I don't see anything new here. Um, you know, I think this, I, and I see some things that are kind of troubling, this overture towards, you know, character assessment. What would that mean? Who would be assessing character? And and how would character be assessed? Uh, I think, you know, these leagues have always done character assessments from the CHL to the NHL. They often do pre-interviews with players. And we've seen that they're not very capable of assessing character. We can think about the player who played in London, Ontario, who was suspended for circulating, I believe, um, sexual images of a former partner who asked not to be drafted to the NHL, but was drafted to the NHL with, with you know, Montreal saying that he'd learned his lesson. Um, we're... The, the league and those in charge have never been great at assessing character. We can think about the captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs, who the one of he was nominated for the Lady Bing trophy the same year he he terrorized and mooned a woman in his when he was home in the summertime. Who is going to be assessing this character? What characteristics will they use to assess character? And how will we make sure that these character assessments don't actually duplicate other forms of social injustice and, and work to uh, create create new problems for the league? Um, I think you're right in saying that, you know, it appears kind of slapped together quickly. It's kind of an attempt to show that these people can move this forward. I think a true commitment to changing hockey culture would have started before this crisis. This crisis isn't new. And if we look back, you know, over the last 30 years, at least, we've seen these moments of crisis, of upheaval, of media pressure, and then we've seen them fade away. What's really, I think, new here is that it's not fading away. It's certainly not fading away very quickly. Um, there are increasing calls and demands for something new. We no longer are comfortable saying that this is the action of a few bad actors, but are now forced to really look at something bigger than that and assess that this is systemic. This is a systemic problem. This is a cultural problem. And we can't have people deeply embedded in the culture trying to fix the culture because that's the thing about how culture works is that you can't see it when you're in it, right? It, it feels natural. It feels normal. And I think some of the reactions today by the hockey executives um, at the standing committee demonstrate that you know they were there was inappropriate laughing and they they appeared jovial these are these are very serious allegations these are very serious problems and i'm i'm not convinced that hockey executives throughout the country really understand the magnitude of what's happened here I'm speaking with Kirsty Elaine. She's an associate professor of sociology at St. Thomas University, New Brunswick, and an expert in men's hockey culture. We're talking about an appearance today in front of a standing committee in Ottawa of Hockey Canada executives dragged onto the floor to uh, talk about settlements that have been paid to uh, victims of, of sexual assault or alleged assaults over the years. Uh, 21 total cases we learned today from two different funds. Uh, that's a lot of money and uh, lots of calls these days, lots of pressure on Hockey Canada um, to change leadership if they're going to try and solve what is clearly a cultural issue within uh, hockey in this country and within uh, the governing body. When we come back, uh, some ideas about what progress might actually look like if it's not going to come from who's there now, who could it come from? That's next. 
My guest is Kirsty Elaine. She's an associate professor of sociology at St. Thomas University in New Brunswick, also an expert in men's hockey culture in this country. Uh, we've been talking about an appearance today in front of a standing committee in Ottawa uh, by Hockey Canada executives trying to explain uh, and answer questions posed by MPs about uh, a whole bunch of allegations that have come out recently. Most recently, of course, this, these, uh, this alleged assault in London, Ontario back in 2018, another one that's emerged in Halifax in 2003, but also a whole series of payoffs, it seems, made by Hockey Canada. Canada to uh, alleged victims of sexual assault. Uh, Christy, just Christy, just to understand where this money is coming from. It sounds like they're using money paid by parents to hush up scandals. That's what it sounded like to me as well. And I mean, not only that, but the gall the gall to call this the equity fund, I, which of course you know makes it appear that they're trying to hide this. What if I were looking at a, a balance sheet for a business and they had a line for an equity fund? I would have assumed that this was money devoted towards you know special initiatives to increase women's participation in hockey or racialized folks' participation in hockey. I would not have expected that the equity fund would have been used to settle out of court um, settlements around their insurance company. Um, you know, this appears to be hush money and th- that's hidden. I think that that seems quite obvious. Now, you've spoken to a lot of people in the game over the years. This is a subject you know very well. It's certainly not nothing new. Uh, what are you hearing from those who, who are trying to change things from from the inside, those who's who have been within the system who think there must be there must be something wrong here and something that needs to shift? Um, I, I've received a few emails from former players and and an email from a a mother of two elite level athletes in the last few days, I think being in the public eye through this story is, has brought some, some interesting stories to me. I, people are really troubled. I think, I think that these are important stories and accounts. Um, we often think that young men, when they leave hockey culture, you know, celebrate it as sort of the glory time of their life. But I think a lot of these young men looking back are really horrified at some of the things that that they endured and some of the things that they participated in and, and that this is traumatizing for them. I, I think that these are important important stories. They also speak to the fact that that lots of people knew what was going on, have known, have participated um, you know, I, I heard David Branch today say that hazing has been out of the league for, for you know, over a decade. That's that's just not true. What I'm hearing from players is, is that their coaches and managers are telling them, do whatever you want. Just make sure it doesn't come back to us. Don't get caught. Um, these kinds of attitudes are, are, are incredibly troubling. So what can be done if it's not going to be changed from the inside? What 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 does the near term look like if Hockey Canada and others um, are going to change? What is a long term issue within the game? Yeah, I think I think that's the that's the really hard question. Here's what we know: we know that the people there can't fix it, and we know that they need to step aside. We know that. Um, fixing hockey culture is going to take lots of different people, lots of different voices, and it's going to take some really creative thinking. It's going to take folks who have been shut out from hockey, folks who have have experienced hockey at its worst, sitting down together and imagining something new. The exact form that takes, I think, at this point is really hard to say, but the only way we can start to imagine something new is by making space, creating room for new voices in the game. And these are going to include people who aren't invested in the same kinds of attitudes that that former people who've been invested in the game are, that we maybe need to focus on 
on fun, on, um, you know, on building good people instead of building good sports systems. And I think this, this also speaks to some of the problems at Sport Canada as well, which are, are you know, increasingly being tied to the, to the problems with Hockey Canada, that this is a sport issue. We will need creative thinkers. We'll need people who, who come from different places, who have different points of view, not the same people, not the people who have been mentoring and producing and aiding and abetting you know, of an incredibly toxic culture of masculinity. Um, our game deserves better than that. Yeah, I mean, it must be in the long run, one would think, uh, and it's difficult to separate. I mean, we, this has always talked about the age of the athletes. They're young, they're, you know, they're successful, they're, you know, it's it's difficult to control. But But at the same time, it feels like in the long run, it would create a better game if this if this were to come true. I think so. I mean, part of my work has been on Canadian national identity and, and that tie, the ways that uh, men's hockey is deeply embedded in our sense of Canada. Wouldn't we want a game that's so wonderful that we can be so proud, you know, that this, you know, we, we tie hockey to Canadian identity because we think it says something about what it means to be Canadian. And I think it does. And today we're feeling, you know, a lot of shock, a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment. I think, you know, publicly there's a great push for something new. And I think we need to build on that, the possibility of something new, you know, and demand better from the people who run hockey. It's not enough to say, I'm the person who can do it. You can't be the person who breaks the system and the person that fixes it. It's time to demand that those in leadership roles in men's elite level hockey broadly step down and create space for people who have been traditionally excluded, who have ideas and new ways of imagining hockey as something something better, something something better than it is now. Christy Elaine, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks for joining. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Well, as the war in Ukraine broke out more than five months ago, many of us, myself included, turned to social media for information, particularly what was happening on the ground in Ukraine. Things were moving so fast that uh, some of those social media accounts, these are people we've interviewed on the show, have been invaluable when it came to uh, spreading information or at least sharing what was happening. I think particularly of a woman named Maria Avdieva in Kharkiv, who we've spoken to a few times on this show, has gone on to do all kinds of other work uh, for other networks worldwide, but uh, who really told the story of Kharkiv. She sort of became um, the de facto correspondent in a city that very few people could reach at that point, a city that was being shelled by Russia each and every night, uh, which is still under attack these days. Um, and just the invaluable serves that she provided, mostly through the videos that she took and posted onto Twitter. So some accounts attracted new followers by the tens of thousands because so many people were interested in finding out what was going on. And many of them, again, like Maria Abdievas, appeared to be great, perfectly reliable, but there was no real way of knowing except to check their credentials, look out for what they were saying, if anything didn't ring true. Of course, information is critical in this war. It has been called the first social media war, although that isn't necessarily true. Well, back in March, a new account popped up that was pretty interesting. It was called Canadian Ukraine One or Canadian Ukrainian Volunteer. I followed it. The user claimed to be joining the front lines of the Ukrainian efforts against the Russian invasion. Um, quote, fighting the Russian invader along the mikhailov kherson axis, read the bio, glory to Ukraine. His follower account skyrocketed, or his follower account skyrocketed, the account uh, posting about war missions, uh, 
to about 118, 120,000 followers or so. But he was posting stuff about war missions, posting, posing in uniform, holding weapons. And he did this for months. Or they did this. We don't even know who it was exactly. Then others in the uh, community started to question the account. And Twitter users identified a string of holes in the alleged fighter's post, believing that the person was posing with a fake rifle, fake helmet, or helmet and magazines, even using photos of others. And then earlier this month, after being challenged, the account suddenly disappeared. Now, because this person was called Canadian-Ukrainian volunteer, uh, I was fascinated. What happened to it? Where did it go? And then there was some reporting that was going on. I've been following some of the claims that perhaps this account wasn't what it was said it was. Um, it was tracked down to somewhere in Ontario. We don't know much more about it than that. Leo Schwartz, though, is a Mexico-based, Mexico City-based reporter at Rest of World reporting on global tech stories. And he's dug into this story to try to find out more about it. He, too, was fascinated by it. And he joins me now. Uh, Leo Schwartz, thanks for your time tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell me how how did you how did you come upon this this particular account and and when did it appear? I've been looking into this strange world of OSINT for a while. OSINT is open source intelligence, uh, which has become this world of amateur researchers, mostly on Twitter, who use open source information like Google Maps or TikTok to track conflict zones and figure out what's happening on them. Essentially, doing the work of intelligence agencies, uh, but doing it in public for free. Uh, So I've been following that community for a while. Uh, They've become increasingly mainstream during the Ukraine war specifically uh, and had done a couple of stories and saw this account pop up. Uh, This account is not an OSIN account like the other ones, but does some of the similar work like going on Telegram and finding footage that Ukrainian soldiers had posted and posting some analysis about it himself. Um, Like a lot of the accounts, he was anonymous. Uh, It was a Canadian man who claimed to be a volunteer fighter in Ukraine and quickly amassed 100,000 followers over the course of about a month. Um, While he was increasing in popularity, uh, a lot of the other OSINT accounts on Twitter began becoming suspect, um, suspecting that he wasn't actually who he said he was. And uh, that was the controversy that I'd seen and began to look into a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I confess, I followed him. You know, I mean, when in those early days of the Ukraine war, there was so much information coming at us that it was hard to differentiate between who, you know, who is exactly, you know, who said who was saying that they were exactly what they were. Um, so, what kind of information? You mentioned it briefly. What kind of information was this person posting, and what were they claiming to be? I mean, you, a soldier volunteering, fighting on the front lines. I gather. Yeah, so they were doing a combination of two things. A lot of their content, like I mentioned, was this type of open source intelligence work where they would take videos from Telegram, which is a messaging platform frequently used by Ukrainian soldiers, and post it on Twitter and add some bit of analysis. They would also post photos and videos that they had claimed to take from the front lines of Ukraine. That was what a lot of people called foul on because it became increasingly clear that he wasn't the one taking those photos or videos, or they were so ostentatious or so unbelievable that there was no way that he'd actually taken them posting things like having killed a uh, Russian soldier with a tomahawk or doing a behind the lines mission on bicycles. And I think a lot of people saw those claims and were like, "This, there's no way this is actually true. 
Yeah, I was going to say that what, what raised alarm bells, because I know there was some of that more obvious stuff, but there are also other little hints that people start to dissect in his actual photos, for instance, or their photos. I don't know. We don't know if it's a he or a she <laughs> um, that, that suggested that the person wasn't who they said they were. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I The interesting thing about the world of OSINT is these are people, like I said, a lot of them are pseudonymous or anonymous, but they spend all their day on Twitter, other social media platforms, finding this information and figuring out what it actually means. So this isn't the type of people that you want to get on the wrong side of. Uh, when they began suspecting that this account um, called Canadian Ukrainian One uh, was fake, they began to dissect the images and the videos and also do other things to try and prove that they weren't who they said they were. Um, one smaller OSINT account even was able to basically send a, a web page to this account that they clicked on and it showed the IP address uh, and showed that they were actually in Ontario, Canada, not in Ukraine. So there were little things like that that began to prove that the account was not only not doing what it claimed, but wasn't likely even in Ukraine in the first place. What was the purpose of the account? Because uh, I understand that there was very little attempt to say, use it fraudulently. I mean, at least to fundraise or for personal uh, profit. It was really, it seemed mostly for personal glory. Yeah, it's an interesting question and really goes to the core of this amateur community on social media. So it first rose during the Syrian civil war and has increased in prominence ever since. Now you're seeing professionalized outfits doing it. Bellingcat, the publication is one example of that. But even the New York Times and the Washington Post now have what they call visual forensics teams, which are basically doing this OSINT work. So from amateurs in the community that I spoke to, I think a lot of people expect that if they're posting this type of work, they might get hired by a professional outlet. Some of them post links for fundraising and can make money off of it. And some of them, like this account, seem to really just be doing it for internet points. I think they just like the validation and getting 100,000 followers and lots of likes on their tweets. Um, they weren't really engaging in trying to raise money or do anything of that nature. It really seems like they just like the attention. Did people ever try to reach out to this individual to figure out who they were or why they were doing it? Yeah, so the account that had tracked down their IP address also identified an individual that he suspected was behind the account. I did reach out to that individual. I'm not going to name them name them on this program just because we haven't confirmed that that is the person. But unfortunately, we still don't know what their motivations were, why they why they're really doing this. So, what happened when it started to to when the jig was up? Essentially, when people started to figure out this person wasn't who they said they were, and we're starting to confront the person with these uh, with these suspe uh, suspicions. What happened to the account? Yeah. So like I said, the amateur OSINT world is not a community that you want to mess with. I think that the Canadian-Ukrainian account kept attracting more and more of these people who really spend their day debunking fake information or debunking real information. And he made the enemies of the wrong, the wrong people uh, and was also very quick to block them, which I think just had the effect of bringing more and more people basically dissecting all the information on the account, trying to figure out what's going on. What was really the downfall was... On July 1st, uh, which I believe was Canada Day, coincidentally, uh, the account posted images of the arms that they were using. Uh, and another OSIN account pointed out that they were, in fact, airsoft rifles or airsoft pistols. So I think that was the final nail in the coffin. And that day, Canadian Ukrainian One sadly left Twitter. Uh, I think some of the people in the OSINT world said that 
he fell in the battle for Tim Hortons. There was lots of good Canadian related jokes to it. Uh, but that was, that was the end of the jig. When it, the fact is, I, I know that there wasn't much fundraising going on. It didn't seem like the person was using this for personal financial gain, at least. Uh, but in the article that you wrote, you do discuss not just what you found, but what you found out from others about the dangers of this, because it can seem quite, um, you know, it can seem like a bit of a victimless crime to some extent, if you look at what happened in this case. But uh, when there is misinformation out there, it does create problems. Yeah, I think there's a few negative consequences of it. One is that this world of amateur OSINT has really become a valuable service to a lot of professional journalists and researchers. Uh, So a lot of what they're doing is taking content from a platform like Telegram and basically dissecting it and figuring out what it means. For those professional researchers, if you now have a lot of noise happening, so basically there's a lot of people spreading information around, it makes it much more difficult to identify the original source of where it came from. And it can make research more difficult for researchers at places like Bellingcat or Storyful, which are these professional outlets that do OSINT type work. The other is, of course, just spreading disinformation and misinformation. I think more and more average people are getting their information about what's happening in conflict zones from Twitter and from these accounts that have hundreds of thousands of followers. And if they're spreading incorrect information about what's happening in something like the war in Ukraine, then obviously that's polluting the information ecosystem with uh, with false knowledge, which which is overall a harmful trend. One of the things that I remember clearly when Bellingcat first sort of emerged, it was mainly about the chemical weapons attacks in Syria, where they did a lot of uh, open source intelligence to try and disprove that the Syrians, what the Syrians were saying, that they weren't using chemical weapons. But the one that really sticks out to me is uh, MH17, the shooting down of the uh, Malaysian air jet over Ukraine uh, back in 2014 as well, where you know there's a lot of denials, but they were using this open source information to sort of prove, or at least try to prove, that in fact it had been a Russian supplied uh, a mil- a missile system that had brought it down. And I guess part of the problem is that a lot of people were trying to challenge that because it went against a narrative that that other powers were trying to sell. So if it starts to get cloudy, that just gives more ammunition to those who try to disprove this kind of work as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of people have written about how the war in Ukraine has really turned into an information war uh, on a lot of fronts between Russia and Ukraine. And a lot of this is happening on social media, on Twitter, on Telegram, uh, to try and change public narratives and public opinion, which can in turn affect things like military funding. So in a lot of ways, I I think people have called this the first social media war, which a a lot of uh, people closely following different conflict zones over the past decade have rightly pointed out isn't really the case. But at the same time, I think one of the front lines for this war is certainly on social media. So in writing all this and in diving into the story, what, what did you what did you learn? What are you taking away from it? And will you continue to pursue it? Definitely. I mean, I think it's a really fascinating intersection between war and influencer culture. Uh, again, the role of social media in how we consume news and information is increasing every day. And with the war in Ukraine, you've seen these amateur OSIN accounts or accounts like Canadian Ukrainian One gain hundreds of thousands of followers and become one of the primary ways that we're we're consuming information as newsreaders. At the same time, this is intersecting with influencer culture that you're seeing on platforms like Twitter and Instagram. So you always have to look at what the motivations for these accounts are, why they're doing it, and then what the downstream effects of that are. Uh, In 
you know, when you're thinking about the next bathing suit you want to buy and getting recommendations from an influencer on Instagram, that's one thing. But when you're getting your news on the war in Ukraine and getting that from a different type of influencer, maybe that has more grave consequences. Uh, so I think it's a it's a fascinating new trend that's emerging. Because one ha- would have to suspect that that this Canadian Ukraine one is by no means alone. Yeah, definitely. And I've gotten that feedback after we published the article of people saying either they have different accounts or there's other accounts doing something similar. So it's certainly not an isolated incident. Leo Schwartz, thanks so much. Fascinating topic. I look forward to seeing your follow-ups on it. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Well, it's been more than five months now since Russia's invasion of Ukraine and those widespread sanctions that followed. And at that time, there was ample warning that the moves would not deal a quick and deadly blow to the Russian economy, that it would take time. But there has been much made of late of just how resilient the Russian economy seems to be. Just yesterday, the International Monetary Fund reported that Russia's economy is holding up better than expected in its world economic outlook. Outlook, rather. The IMF slashed growth forecasts for almost every country around the world, but upgraded Russia's economic forecast, uh, with the economy still contracting, but by 5%, or 6%, rather, an improvement over their April forecast of an 8.5% contraction. It's still a relatively big contraction. That's not a good thing for your economy. But they say it's holding out better. Why? Uh, Crude oil and non-energy exports have been holding up better, they say. In addition, domestic demand is also showing some resilience thanks to the containment of the effect of the sanctions on the domestic financial sector and a lower than anticipated weakening of the labor market, said the IMF. Others, though, disagree, arguing that far from being ineffective or disappointing, international sanctions and voluntary business retreats have exerted a devastating effect over Russia's economy. So how did they come to that conclusion? Well, joining me now are Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, the Lester Crown Professor in Management Practice and a Senior Associate Dean at the Yale School of Management, and Stephen Tian, who's Director of Research at the Yale Chief Executive Leadership Institute. They are authors of a report called, Actually, the Russian Economy is Imploding, Nine Myths About the Effects of Sanctions and Business Retreats Debunked. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks. We're honored to join you, Ben. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ben. So just from the get-go, clearly this uh, this whole a process began with an assumption that something wasn't being reported correctly out there, but what's happened to the Russian economy given these sanctions? What was your hypothesis going in and what were you trying to figure out? Well, we got involved back at the end of February on this particular topic. I've been looking at corporate social impact issues uh, for 40 some years. Uh, I shouldn't admit that, but looking at whether or not it's on voting rights or uh, immigration reform issues, gun safety issues, a whole host of topics, of of course, in the U.S. on abortion decisions and company responses and things is in this matter, uh, we saw companies act and I was playing catch up is that there were some first movers that were shocking to us, professional service firms, oil uh, industry companies, uh, and, and uh, uh, I guess um, a, a third a third unlikely cluster was uh, big tech. A big tech, big oil, and professional services would usually jump off a cliff rather than be on the leading edge of, of social justice issues. So I was intrigued, and I started to talk with some of the CEOs on those fronts, and then there were a wash of pretenders that came in. So Steve and I got involved in trying to separate out the metrics who was genuinely pulling out of Russia and who was just making a lot of noise atmospherics with, with effective smokescreen from PR uh, professionals. And in the process of doing so, the list grew from the initial dozen to now 1,300 
but then it's had a profound impact that we've been measuring the impact on the Russian economy. We started to see this groundswell of skepticism growing in Western media, suggesting, oh, no, maybe the savvy, canny master tactician smirking uh, uh, President Putin is going to prevail. And that uh, and using statistics in the last few weeks that he's manufactured and promoted. And we thought we should we should take this on. And uh, that's that's how we got involved. So, Stephen, I, I gather from the from the outset, one of the issues here was how reliable were Russia's economic data coming out? How, how reliably could they be judged? Could the impact of these sanctions uh, be judged? What did you find there? Ben, this is such an important question because all the studies that are out there giving these sanguine forecasts about how great the Russian economy and how resilient Russia is supposedly holding up in the face of sanctions are based off statistics released by the Kremlin itself. And there's a few problems with this. Number one, the Kremlin's become increasingly more selective about which statistics they're actually releasing. In short, they're cherry-picking. They're, they're putting out the good stats and holding back the bad stats. If you look at the number of stats that they released before the invasion and after the invasion, they're holding back on all trade data, all export data, all import data. They're holding back on currency flows. They're, they're holding back on fiscal information and monetary information. Basically, everything that you need to know to be able to come up with an understanding of how their economy is actually doing, they're holding back on. And they're selectively releasing these cherry-picked statistics, which show the Kremlin in the best possible light. Statistics like uh, the exchange rate, which is nonsense, and we can get into that later on. Statistics like uh, you know uh, the price of oil, which isn't that great anyways, and we can talk about that too. But, but these are cherry-picked statistics, which are misleading and which don't actually reflect the genuine picture of what's going on in the Russian economy. You also have a lot of challenges regarding data integrity. Even the numbers that are put out, we have serious questions about them. You look at the level of political interference that has taken place at the, uh, it's an agency called Rostad. It's the Federal Statistics Service in Russia, which is essentially the agency responsible for all collecting all of this data in Russia. And you look at the level of political interference. Putin's put one of his cronies, the deputy minister uh, in his government uh, is now in charge of Rostad instead of uh, the career professionals it used to be. And obviously, it, it, you can draw the inference there of what's going on. So, so these are some of the questions that we have regarding these statistics. You did look at some of the myths that are, that are out there, and I know you list those myths in this uh, current article in Foreign Policy, nine in all. I, I thought it would be easy to divide them into three separate areas. One was the idea of diversification, specifically energy diversification, um, and this idea that they can easily pivot to other markets, whether it be India, China, and pivot away from the European Union, where a vast majority of their exports go now. Uh, and you found that's just not, just can't be done. Well, you know, it is it is very hard. We have seen that uh, their belief that somehow they uh, they hold the upper hand in on energy is dramatically uh, overstated. There are uh, certainly uh, uh, Europe is very dependent on Russia for about uh, of maybe 40 some 42 percent of their of their imports and energy. Russia, though, is overwhelmingly dependent on Europe to send that oil and gas there for for their the revenues to fuel Putin's war machine. It's like about 80, 86 percent of dependence. When you take a look at maybe it's 83 percent of dependence. What you know, that's quite an imbalance. And they really can't sell it to anybody else. 
the media was regularly confused, thinking that somehow oh, we could uh, redirect the gas uh, to perhaps oh, uh, from Russia to uh, selling to Europe, to redirect it to China or redirect it uh, to India. They can't. This is, this is not liquefied gas. It has to go through gas pipelines. And there are basically no pipelines. There's one pipeline which uh, with maybe a fraction, 16.5 uh, cubic metrics of, 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 of gas going through there, as opposed to the 170 billion uh, cubic metrics uh, meters that were going through uh, in, in the, uh, the pipelines to Europe. Uh, and that's where, that's where they need to send it. They can't sell it elsewhere. And similarly with oil, it's, it's not that as fungible as people think. Just to, uh, uh, to deal with the price of oil, Russia can't just do a simple pivot. Is uh, China and India are hardly their best friends. They've been taking advantage of the fact that if the West, West can't buy this oil, then they can go for steep discounts at $35 a barrel discounts. It's never, it's never had a dip as much as $5, but they're getting these huge discounts now. And, and meanwhile, their coffers are filled, their tanks are filled. India can't use any more uh, Russian oil. And if they could, it takes like 35, uh, 40 days to get it to these places where it's only two days to get it to, to Russia, to, from Russia to Europe. So it's, it's not easy to do that kind, of, um, that kind of substitution of customers. It's just not going to happen. Meanwhile, Europe uh, can develop alternative sourcing. They've got possibilities that you know looking into of a couple of months, maybe as much as six months to develop liquid national gas, liquid natural, ga- natural gas uh, facilities to be able to bring in gas from elsewhere. Europe has more options. Europe is less dependent. Uh, so, you know, that's some of what's going on there. And uh, uh, it, it is remarkable. And China is also uh, on another front and been not there to, to fill in on substitute imports that they need for parts, for equipment and things like that. That's, that's just not happening. In fact, the China, the China trade, shockingly, is actually down. I'm speaking with Jeff, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. He's the Lester Crown Professor in Management Practice and a Senior Associate Dean at the Yale School of Management. And Stephen Tian, he's the Director of Research at the Yale Chief Executive Leadership Institute. We're talking about an article they've just co-authored called Actually, the Russian Economy is Imploding. Uh, they've looked at a whole bunch of different metrics to try to figure out what exactly is happening inside that country since its invasion of Ukraine and the imposition of severe sanctions. Um, and uh, what they find is that, in fact, Russia's in trouble, deep trouble, uh, and simply trying to uh, cherry pick some data out there um, to show otherwise. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about one of the biggest uh, topics of conversation these days. What's happening inside the country? You've had all these major multinationals leave. They're so reliant on foreign expertise for their energy industries and for just about everything else. Uh, what's happening inside the country? And what must be done now? Because clearly, both experts argue that there is more room here for further sanctions. We'll be back with that. My guests this half hour are Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. He's the Lester Crown Professor in Management Practice and a Senior Associate Dean at the Yale School of Management. And Stephen Tian, Director of Research at the Yale Chief Executive Leadership Institute. We're talking about their recent article in Foreign Policy called Actually, the Russian Economy is Imploding. Stephen, inside the country, that's been a huge um, topic of conversation because we see, you know, the new McDonald's that's there. They don't have potatoes, obviously. We see all these things, all these attempts to try to replace what's been lost. But what's been lost in many ways seems irreplaceable. 1,300 companies, uh, you were saying earlier. Ben, I couldn't have put it any better myself. If you read Putin's speeches, he talks, uh, he brags with this bravado about how Russia can be a self-sustaining economy, how they don't need the West 
how they're able to use import substitution to develop domestically all the manufacturing and high technology expertise that they'll ever need. That's just not true. Ben, this is not the Russia of the Soviet Union 70 years ago. This is Russia that is a part of the global economy in the 21st century. And you look at imports, for all the focus that have been on Russia as a commodity exporter, imports are crucial to the Russian economy. As you pointed out, it represents 20% of GDP, and they don't have the domestic manufacturing capacity of semiconductors and you know uh, smartphones, other uh, high technology. They need the rest. They need the rest of the world. And you look at what's going on. Even China, you've seen imports from China plummet by over 50% from the start of the invasion. China does 10 times more trade with the United States than they do with Russia. They are much more concerned about running afoul of U.S. sanctions than they are of losing whatever marginal position they have in the Russian market. It's no more than 1% to 2% of GDP for all of these global multinational corporations. It's not even close. So when you get back to the business retreat, not only do you have one, one over a 1,000 companies having pulled out representing 12% of Russian's workforce, around 5 million workers, uh, that's 40% of GDP, you also have the devastation that's wrought internally. You have the goods of so many items that are reliant on, 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 on international supply chains soaring by 60%. Uh, you have Russian domestic manufacturers scrambling or trying to cannibalize parts from their existing fleets to service aircraft and to make cars. You look at cars that are being sold without safety locks, without, without, uh, uh, without safety brakes, without uh, airbags. This is not the signs of an economy that is supposedly resilient under the weight of sanctions. These are all the signs of an economy that's falling apart at the seams. And, and Ben, if you could take any, if you yeah. take any more bludgeoning, I would join in on that. Is to is to add there are other these other indicators in terms of quality of life with a soaring percent, a soaring sixty percent or more inflation. That that's a lot worse than the seven or eight percent people are wringing their hands around here. Sixty percent is a conservative estimate for their inflation because they can't get these rare parts that Steve is talking about, yeah. whether or not it's for your your iPhone or your automobile, but also. And ben, if I can just strip in, it's not just 60% inflation. You're seeing sales grind to almost a complete halt in so many crucial sectors. You look yeah, at foreign, foreign cars, 95% from cars, yeah. and that's most of their cars, 95% yeah. fallen. And, and workforce, we of, of those 1,000 plus companies that we've tracked that have pulled out of Russia, that accounts for somewhere around 15% or so of Russia's workforce conservatively, directly. But then all the jobs that re relate to that, that's three times that. So we're looking at well more than 40% of the population looking at unemployment. Even the mayor of Moscow admitted the hundreds of thousands of people out of work. And if, he, if he's admitting that, you know, it's quite a bit more. Uh, so this is uh, this in Moscow alone. So th these are quite telltale times, uh, signs. We have data from inside Russia of around 700,000 top professionals IT experts and others who have fled the country. That's really, really draining That's a, a lot of the capital. So, so I guess I only have a few minutes left, but this begs the question, how long can they keep up the facade if it is indeed a facade? And what should the West be doing? Well, you know, a lot of things depend on, of course, 
how much they keep spending on the war as they're drawing in deficits, as Stephen has revealed, they're actually drawing down deficits. Their capital reserves are not what they purport. They have about 600 billion only in capital reserves and 300 of that is, is frozen by the West. It's great for the West, what they have frozen to seize that and reallocate that to the rebuilding of Ukraine. And then what the West should do is also increase sanctions. There's a, a great group that works very closely with uh, President Zelensky from the Kiev School of Economics that has studied the additional sanctions on high profile individual Russians now that need to come down, which are which are very important and uh, which, you know, going after oligarchs and other top influential people in the government that would have a big impact uh, is basically what we're looking at here has been is an alternative uh, to, uh, to going into open warfare with Russia ourselves from the West is hopefully better than that is to do what brought down Nikolai Ceausescu uh, in Romania or Eric Honecker in East Germany or Jaroszelski in Poland or things is to have a breakdown of civil society. It would be much better to have a near bloodless uh, uh, change of leadership there. And that's what happens if you stall out civil society by these moves. And Ben, it's that breakdown of civil society that's so much more important than the narrow question of uh, when will Russia run out of cash. The simple answer to that is it depends on so many factors. We've shown in our paper that the Russian fiscal position is not nearly as strong as people say it is, with running budget deficits equivalent to 2% of GDP, with energy prices being as high as they are right now. Not great. Drawing down $75 billion in foreign exchange reserves after the invasion began alone. Not great. But ultimately, more important than than the supposed you know necessity of bankrupting Russia, which is a false premise, is what Jeff said. It's how much pain can the Russian economy genuinely tolerate? What is the threshold there? Jeffrey Sonnenfeld and Stephen Tian, thank you so much for your time tonight. Fascinating paper that you've written and uh, fascinating conclusions that you've come to. Thank you very much, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Well, perhaps no Canadian company flew quite as high in the early days and through the pandemic as Ottawa-based Shopify. The company helps business owners set up online stores, and many did just that when public health measures forced them to move quickly into e-commerce. And that propelled double-digit revenue growth for Shopify through much of 2020 and 2021, becoming Canada's most valuable company, I believe, at one point. Well, times have changed, and today the company reported weaker-than-expected results for the second quarter and warned that inflation and rising interest rates would weigh on the business in the second half of the year. It comes just a day after CEO Tobias Lutka announced the company was laying off about 1,000 employees. It's about 10% of its global workforce. So what's going wrong, and is one of Canada's most notable companies going to be able to turn things around? Joining me now is Murad Hamadi. He's a reporter for The Logic, Canada's tech and innovation newsroom. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. I know you've been following this very closely. Um, for those out there, just to just to set the table, for those out there who may not know exactly what Shopify does and why it became such a valuable and successful company uh, through the pandemic, what is it that they do and how do they make money? Yeah, so uh, think about yourself as someone who wants to sell something online. Maybe it's uh, uh, some kind of clothing item. Maybe it's cosmetics. These are popular products uh, for Shopify merchants. Uh, Shopify gives you essentially the ability to set up a, a web store, like a store on the internet. Uh, and then um, it charges you a subscription for that, but it also makes money by selling you a whole host of add-ons. So things like uh, processing payments on your behalf, 
shipping. They're moving increasingly into the world of fulfillment. All kinds of financial products, including sort of cash advances. Um, and so every time you use one of those services or, or you know, someone buys something from your store using one of those services, Shopify might make a little cut of that transaction. And that's how they build up this revenue base, which, uh, you know, you were just talking about the Q2 results uh, this morning in the second quarter. They made about 1.3 billion U.S. Uh, in revenue. Now, this was pretty much, I guess, telegraphed by the announcement of the layoffs yesterday to get out, get out in front of this. But uh, but it was a pretty gloomy second quarter result. What's what's happening? I think people could guess, but what's happening right now to to uh, to rain on Shopify's parade, so to speak? Yeah. So that second quarter number, that one point three uh, billion, that was uh, up about fifteen point seven percent from. 2021. Uh, and basically, the reason why that result uh, doesn't look quite so rosy uh, is that, as you were saying, uh, during the pandemic, uh, things went a lot, lot better for Shopify. So, you know, uh, from the sort of second quarter of 2020, when when all of us were locked down, uh, you know, they their their growth basically doubled uh, over those uh, over much of the those two years. It was only in the later parts of last year that started things started to slow, and they're continuing to slow. And so the factors you mentioned, they're talking about, you know, inflation. Uh, interest rates, the general sense of sort of unease among consumers who might uh, not sort of, you know, click buy on that uh, discretionary item. Uh, you know, as I was saying, a lot of their uh, a lot of their merchants uh, do things like uh, clothes and uh, cosmetics and, uh, you know, things that might be considered uh, the things you'd cut back on if you were worried about uh, your job or worried about the state of the economy in the next six to 12 months, as we know lots of people are. Uh, that means less people buying uh, fewer items on stores that use Shopify technology. And that ultimately means that their own revenues and their margins don't grow as fast. For listeners who may not know this, though, you know, Shopify's quarterly results like today, it's world business news. I mean, this is a hugely important or at least a hugely followed company and much. I mean, you follow it from here, uh, but this is a big story. It absolutely is. And that's one of the really interesting things about covering Shopify over the last four or five years, which is kind of how long I've been doing it. You know, they went public in 2015 and uh, they went public in Canada and in the U.S., but it wasn't necessarily a big story at all in the U.S. Uh, and over the last two years, you've just seen, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, journalists like to see what other journalists are writing about. And it's been fascinating over the course of the pandemic. You know, they've been on the cover of Bloomberg Business Week. Uh, the New York Times had a really, the New York Times Magazine had a really long story about them. Uh, they've been covered by all of these major publications. Like the, their president, uh, Harley Finkelstein, is regularly on uh, uh, the on Jim Cramer show in, on uh on CNBC in the States, which is like, uh, you know, one of those really market-moving shows. Uh, so they have gotten a lot of attention. Uh, but there was an interesting comment yesterday, I believe it was from the CEO, saying that they had they'd got it wrong, that they had predicted an acceleration in a sort of a continued acceleration in the move towards uh, e-commerce and that they had got it wrong. What did he mean by that? And it seems like something that you don't often hear a CEO say or admit to at least. So if you were listening to, uh, you know, Toby Lucky, the CEO, or other executives in sort of early 2021, they were saying uh, what the pandemic has 
actually done is accelerate uh, people moving online to do their shopping by five or 10 years. So, you know, uh, more and more uh, retail, uh, just buying stuff has been moving online in, in recent, like really for the last 20 years. Uh, but their idea was, well, this is kind of a step change. Like this is, this is the moment where it kind of breaks away. You know, nothing will ever be the same again. And this, the march towards e-commerce is just going to get faster and faster and just keep going. Uh, and that's what essentially he was saying was that that bet was wrong. Uh, you know, if you look at, at those trend lines, uh, e-commerce is kind of falling back down to earth as people now can go back to brick and mortar stores. You know, you can go and shop in the real world and that is a thing that people actually like to do. I mean, you might still buy some stuff online and have it delivered, but there's an experience of a, as a, as a mall rat myself, I can tell you going into a store and just like browsing around, even if you don't walk out with anything, uh, is an experience that people still get pleasure out of. And uh, that's something they're going back to doing. So that's what he was talking about. In terms of the actual saying it out loud, I mean, look, uh, it's hard to argue with for him to argue with the stock number, which has been, you know, they're down sort of like more than 80% on their high from November last year. And uh, they have to say something, they have to do something. Uh, you know, they very much tried to frame these layoffs as this isn't going to affect our uh, our bottom, uh, this isn't going to affect our plans for the future. They're launching all these new products and they're saying, he said very, he said very clearly today, uh, we're not sacrificing anything to do this. You know, we see the we see place for efficiencies. Uh, it's important to remember we're talking about a thousand people who lost their jobs in an environment when it's pretty difficult or getting increasingly difficult to get hired in the tech industry. So, uh, you know, how far that sort of uh, that frankness goes with the people who lost their jobs, I think, remains to be seen. Yeah, I was reading uh, there were a lot of comments from people who lost their jobs yesterday. You, you notice just how much how dedicated they were to the company itself, how loyal their employees were, because there was a lot of uh, talking about, you know, how disappointed people were clearly not just about the job, but leaving the organization, something they truly believed in. I guess what happened, if I understand correctly, they really did tool up for this big growth. And I gather what's happened is now they're having to scale back down. Yeah, so the, the company said that the cuts that are made yesterday were in areas like recruitment, uh, in areas like uh, support functions uh, and sales. Uh, that last one is kind of interesting because one of the things that they have said for this year is that they're getting really aggressive with sales and marketing because they believe uh, that they can acquire a lot of new uh, businesses that aren't yet on Shopify and that they can sell more of their services to the ones that already are. Um, now, what is interesting is that a lot of the tooling up last year actually did happen on the R&D side. Uh, so, you know, they had this like uh, little jokey, they were going to hire 2021 technical staff. So like engineers, developers, and people like that in 2021, that was kind of the joke. Uh, and I think they, they actually did. They hired about 3000 people last year, give or take. Um, so that is to say the people that got cut yesterday may not have been exactly the people that have been hired to tool up. Uh, there may be a little bit of uh, reorg going on as well. I'm speaking with Murad Hamadi. He's the reporter for the Logic Canada's Tech and Innovation Newsroom. We're talking about Shopify releasing their second quarter results today. Uh, disappointing. I mean, again, you know, they, they're not doing badly, but but clearly uh, the wind is out of the sails a little bit for for one of Canada's high flyers through the pandemic. And there's been some layoffs announced as well. 1,000 employees, about 10% of their global workforce. Uh, when we come back, the obvious question, uh, Murad, the obvious question, will this work? Will investors see the silver lining in all this and and flock back? 
to Shopify or are they in trouble? That's next. Our guest is Murad Hamadi, a reporter for the Logic Canada's Tech and Innovation Newsroom, perhaps the best versed reporter on Shopify in the country in many ways. Uh, always one to follow if you want to know more about one of Canada's high flyers through the pandemic. Fallen on some tougher times these days, announced uh, some layoffs yesterday, reported some relatively disappointing second quarter results today. So uh, this is always the million dollar question, I know. So will this work? Do you think there's a lot of confidence still out there in their ability um, to be one of the front runners, because we know that this move towards e-commerce will continue, just not at the pace, perhaps, that uh, some, including Shopify, were betting on. Yeah, I think that is sort of a question a lot of people are asking themselves today. I mean, uh, I, maybe I'll give you two perspectives. One is that, you know, the analysts that cover this company even more closely than I do uh, are generally still, uh, you know, uh, there, there, there are about as many analysts with sort of a, a buy rating on this company right now as there are uh, with a board. Uh, that used to be a lot, a lot more in one direction, but uh, you know there've been concerns about the valuation for a while. So uh, that that that's one that's one way of looking at it. Uh, another is you know uh, Shopify CEO Toby Lutke, uh can sometimes be a little um, cerebral uh, about these things, uh, and they've long sort of tried not to talk about the stock price. You know, there used to be this rule famously at Shopify that if you were caught with the stock price on your screen, you had to buy everyone on your team a box of Timbits. Uh, I don't think they have that anymore. Uh, now that things are, are not looking quite as good, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty good uh, incentive to focus on the work, I guess, so that was the idea. Um, but today he was kind of asked sort of a question about this, and he said, look, uh, this company makes bets. Uh, and, you know... Um, Sometimes those bets don't pay out, uh, don't sort of pan out. But where he literally said, we have to make it up on the fly because there's no sort of how to build a Shopify book on the shelves of a bookstore, you know. And that their defense is essentially they took a risk, they made a bet, it didn't pay off. Long term, they're confident in their strategy. One thing I'd point to, you know, I've talk, we've talked a little bit about the various services that they offer. They are adding more and more of those services. And as they continue to do that, they can basically take a larger and larger share of all of the money that a merchant, like a store, has to send, has to spend to get you something, right? There's uh, costs associated with, like, the actual delivering it to you. There's costs associated with uh, paying for it, all kinds of costs. Uh, there's the bank account, all of this kind of stuff Shopify is building. So if it ultimately becomes the sort of place to do this, then, you know, that that is a, a relatively sort of robust uh, proposition. Uh, there have been in the past, when this company was a lot smaller pre-pandemic, there has been some speculation and some talk about, you know, who might buy a company like this, whose portfolio would it fit well within, and they certainly have close relationships with companies like Meta, with companies like Google, with companies like Microsoft. They're built into all of the stuff that those companies build. Uh, so that 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 talk, I'm already starting to see crop up a little bit more today. Uh, that is also one thing that's on the table. Uh, that would be a shame. I mean, in some ways, I think one of the things that everyone's really enjoyed, if you're Canadian, watching Shopify is that it's a Canadian success story in many ways. I mean, it's an international success story uh, with their CEO and so forth. But it really feels like a Canadian success story. And there were some lean years there after, you know, the fall, you know, the falling down of BlackBerry and so on. It was nice to see another Canadian quote unquote tech company become a darling. For sure. And this is one of the really interesting things because uh, I'm actually based in Ottawa, 
which is or used to be Shopify Central, you know, downtown Ottawa, um, the little bit of uh, town below Parliament was basically like if you were in a, uh, standing in a coffee shop there, you were surrounded by people who work for the government, people who lobbied the government, and Shopify employees. Like <laughs> that was the that was kind of downtown Ottawa, you know. Uh, and they they went kind of remote first during the pandemic. And they have increasingly been hiring kind of everywhere. You know, they have a really big presence in the U.S. now. They have a big presence in Toronto. And that's not to say that they're becoming, they're sort of like subtly shifting outside of Canada. That's not happening. Uh, but you're right. They have, they were kind of the icon of Canadian tech. Uh, they're still significantly bigger than almost anybody else. And that, uh, you know, we've seen, and, and maybe this is an important bit of context, right? Their stock has done really badly in the last, uh, for the year to date in 2022 and over since November, but so have a lot of other Canadian tech companies. There was a huge rush of IPOs uh, last year, and most of those companies are now trading down on where they listed. So basically, if you invested on the day that they went public, you've lost money on that so far. So it is not Shopify specific, although they may be the most prominent example. Yeah, I was going to ask you, other companies must be in the same boat, but you just answered that question. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, and, and so that is tech in general, um, but also e-commerce. So one other example to give you, there's a company called Clearco uh, based in Toronto. And my colleague, a colleague of mine named John Victor at The Logical Covers, financial technology companies, just reported that they've laid some people off. Uh, what they do is they do like uh, financing if you run an e-commerce business, if you run a product business online, uh, direct to consumer, then they'll basically advance you money against your sales. Uh, and they've done layoffs. You know, we uh, this week is earnings week, so we'll probably see eBay go through a similar set of numbers. Etsy will probably be the same. Uh, Amazon even. Uh, these are different business models in Shopify, it's important to say, but they're all affected by the way consumers feel about the world. And uh, I mean, I'm sure I don't need to tell you, you probably have, uh, you know, this has probably been a theme over the last little while. Consumers are feeling pretty uncertain. Uh, so that that that's going to hit everybody who sells anything, really. Yurit Hamadi, thank you so much for uh, for sharing your knowledge of, the, of, uh, of Shopify today. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me on.